Thank you guys so much for being here. I hope you had a good Christmas. We had a good Christmas. It's like our kids opened presents for six or seven days in a row. And then they woke up and it was like, there's no more presents. And they said, well, are we going to the toy store? It's like, no, by no means. We're not going to the toy store anymore. They don't understand. Jonathan said, I'm frustrated that Christmas is over. I said, all right, buddy, it'll come again next year. So we had a good Christmas. I hope you all did too. Visiting family, being together. Uh, the Sunday after Christmas is always hard because the Christmas decorations are still up and you feel like we were talking this morning, Nick said, I almost put in a Christmas song just because I felt like we should have, hey, he's finally here. We ought to celebrate that, right? But what even preaching can be hard because we're, we're starting a new series in January called Renew and we're going to be talking about personal renewal and how God makes us new even as we walk with him as believers for a, a long time. How can God bring fresh renewal to our life? We just stepped out of an incredible series of Advent, Make Room for the Sun. All fall, we looked at making room, and then for Advent specifically, we looked at how to make room for the sun in our life. And then we have this weird in-between Sunday, in-between series after Christmas, and it's not quite New Year's, and so what do we talk about? And as I was praying this week, I kept thinking about New Year's. And if you're like me, I, I kind of buck the trend of when, when you talk about resolutions, I don't want to do resolutions just because people talk about doing resolutions. Uh, for one, I failed at them every time I've ever tried. Uh, I think Al was telling me this morning, there's some crazy stat about most people by the end of January, they're already all out the window. So, uh, so I, I don't really want to talk about resolutions, but I think we all get in this mindset at the end of the year where we're, we're reviewing a year that's come to a close. We're looking ahead to a year that's starting. In this case, we're looking ahead to a whole new decade. I'm not going to get into the argument I saw yesterday that technically 2020, is it a new decade or is it a part of the 2010s? I'm not going to enter, but it is a part of the 2020s, so that's where I, I stand officially. Uh, but it's a time of let's stop and let's pause and let's look back and let's look ahead. And when I was thinking about looking ahead and resolutions, if you make resolutions or goals or what I like to think about is what kind of habits am I trying to put into my life? I mean, that's way easier for me to think about. What are, what are the things we're trying to do more regularly that I can build into my life in 2020? Not necessarily a goal that I want to obtain or, or one specific thing I want to do in 2020, but what are things I need to build into my life? And I thought, of going a few different directions this morning. I mean, we could talk about what's a prayer for 2020 that we want to all pray together, or what's a vision from the Lord that we say, hey, this is who God is, and let's strive after this in 2020. And I thought, I came to Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, where Jesus calls some of his first disciples. And I thought, what if our vision for a new year and a new decade was the same vision Jesus cast for his very first disciples? What if we, for our year coming up, for our decade as individuals and as a church family, what if we had the same vision that Jesus cast? What if we let Jesus cast that vision for us? If you have a copy of God's word, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. We're just going to be in one verse today. So let's read God's word together. Matthew four nineteen says this, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we ask for your Holy Spirit to meet us. We know that, God, as I'm preaching, I, I can speak mouth to ear, but you can speak to our hearts. And we ask you to do that this morning. I pray we wouldn't be the same after hearing your word. I pray that it would change us in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Matthew 4.19 is a foundational verse for us as pastors and Matthew and as a church. We come to Matthew 4.19 when anybody asks us, okay, you say you want to make disciples. What does that mean? So, so how do you define disciple? What is a disciple? What is a follower of Jesus? I mean, we ought to have a good definition of this, right? That's what we're after here as a church is we want to help people follow Jesus. We want to help people be disciples. We want to help people grow. We want to help people change. So you got a big book. You got to pick some sort of simple definition, right? Where do you get it from? So we come to Matthew 419 because we think in Jesus' simple statement, he gives a vision for what the life of a disciple is. And I think everything that happens in our Christian life can be fit into Matthew 4.19. And my prayer is that Matthew 4.19 would be our vision for next year. And that all of our goals, that you would have goals based on what we see in Matthew 4.19. That you would have habits you're trying to build into your life based on Matthew 4.19. So let's dive in and let's see what Jesus says to his very first disciples. He comes up to Peter who's originally is called Simon and Andrew, they're fishing and he says to them, follow me. Now, originally, this wasn't totally uncommon because rabbis would have disciples, but typically the followers would come to the rabbi and say, hey, can I follow you? I mean, that, that language was kind of familiar, so they'd come and can I follow you? And what they meant was, can I go where you go? Can I be with you? Learn how you think, learn your ways, kind of learn uh, from you as I follow you. But it was kind of rare for the rabbi to go to the followers and say, hey, why don't I want you to come follow me? So the first part of being a disciple is Jesus' invitation for you to follow him. A disciple follows Jesus. A disciple follows Jesus. So I want to break this down for us. First, why do we need to follow Jesus? Why do we as disciples need to follow Jesus? I think most simply, I take Pastor Al's definition of what worship is. We need to follow Jesus because of who he is and because of who we are. Pastor Al says all the time, he reminds us that worship is when we look up and we see who God is and what he's like, and then we look down and we see ourselves and we realize we're not like him. But then we look up to him again and we see, oh, he's made a way for us to know him and be with him, and that's worship. We're looking up to God and we're looking down at ourselves. And we're seeing the great distance between us at first because of our sin and his holiness. But then we're seeing how he's brought us near through the person of Jesus. And we worship God because of how beautiful and amazing he is. Well, we ought to follow Jesus because of who he is, because of who we are. Who are we? We are sinners. We are lost. We are destined for eternal separation from God. We're lost in this life. We're living with brokenness within us. And we're living in a world full of brokenness. That's who we are. But who is Jesus? Jesus is Lord, King, Savior, Son of God. He's the Christ or the Messiah, the anointed one from God to make all things right again. So we ought to follow Jesus because we are a great sinner and he is a great Savior. We ought to follow Jesus because... When we see who he is and we see who we are, we realize we need Jesus. We follow Jesus because we need him. We need him to be our salvation. It struck me this Christmas season that God did not meet our need by giving us ideas or strategies for living. Our salvation is a person, not an ideology. We aren't after a set of propositions to apply to our life. 
right? I mean, we were talking this morning about what shapes us and some of us were just having a conversation and we were talking about our kids and what shapes our kids. And, you know, the truth is if you had, if every year on your kid's birthday you gave them a fact book for all the facts they would need at that age and you somehow had perfect wisdom to know all the facts they would need in every situation they'd come to and say, here's, I mean, here's the back of the book. Here's the answers to being nine. And you gave it to them. It wouldn't matter a whole lot. Right? It, it wouldn't matter a whole lot. I mean, th- come on. There might be some things they cheat on and they figure out the answer and they go, this is going to help me get, but they're not going to follow all those facts. Because just a mere set of propositions is not what changes our lives. God met our needs by giving us a person, not just a set of propositions or a collection of advice to help us live better. He knew we needed to be rescued from our sin and restored to the one thing we were destined for, and that's relationship with him. So we need Jesus to be our salvation. Jesus is God's solution for our sin and our suffering, for death and separation from him. We desperately need Jesus to be our savior, our substitute, our advocate, our righteousness, like Nick talked about earlier as he was praying for us. We need Jesus to be our salvation, but we also need Jesus to be our shepherd. That's great. I mean, we were, Carrie and I were talking this week, uh, and we read a line, someone that said, forgiveness makes all things new, and I said, "That's, that's really not right. Forgiveness is wonderful, and we ought to celebrate and sing about forgiveness, but it doesn't make everything new. Forgiveness is more about erasing the past than it is fixing the future, right? I mean, forgiveness looks back on your sin and says, hey, all this record, forgiven. But it doesn't make you new for the future because you're going to keep going forward and that passage is going to keep getting bigger. But God in the, how he provides for us in the gospel of Jesus is that he doesn't just cover the past, but he makes our future new. He gives us a shepherd named Jesus, to lead us and guide us because we're like sheep and he's the shepherd and we need to be provided for and cared for. We need to be fed. We need protection. We need rest. We need wisdom. And Jesus is all of that for us. So why do we need to follow Jesus? Because we need him to be our salvation and our shepherd. So how in the world should we be following Jesus? Well, first, how should we not follow Jesus? And there's two big things I want to talk about this morning. First, don't follow your heart. That's just bad advice. So, so let's just make a New Year's resolution to just never say follow your heart, okay? Go look the Bible, not in there, okay? Don't, following Jesus is not about doing whatever feels right or feels best. That's not following Jesus. And, and following Jesus is also don't follow Jesus just because you think he's going to help you get the stuff you want, Right, Jesus is not a genie in a bottle or a divine vending machine. We don't follow Jesus because we have this great portfolio of life and we think, hey, if I brought Jesus into this, man, that's raising my stock a little bit more. I grew up at a big church and at a big church in the South, it helps politicians to show up, right? Like that, that's true. It help, if you show up to a really big church and you're running for office where most of those people are gonna be voting, show up. They go to the polls, and let's be honest, you look at the names, you go, I'm not really sure who any of these people are. That guy was at church on Sunday. I mean, he can't be too bad, right? Right? I mean, I remember growing up and seeing that. I, rem- I grew up in the South where Christianity was a cultural artifact that, if you, you know, you open up your portfolio, 
and you've got a resume and you're going down and church is right in there and it helps you. That's not what it means to follow Jesus. In Philippians 3, Paul actually talks about emptying your portfolio, dumping it out. Anything you gained by the flesh, anything that you thought was worthy, that was powerful, that was helping prop you up, anything that you previously counted as gain in this life, counted as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. So following Jesus is not just following your heart. It's not following Jesus to tack him on to what you think is an already good life. Following Jesus means we first keep our eyes on him. Look at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews encourages us that as we run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. How do we follow Jesus? We keep our eyes on him. How do you keep your eyes on Jesus? Are you looking to Jesus regularly, daily, multiple times a day? How long do you go in between glances at Christ? Part of our, one of my seminary classes, we had to listen to this sermon, and it was about introspection. It was about looking at yourself and analyzing yourself. And he talked about how much we overanalyze ourselves. And, and even we do it and we try to make it holy. We're trying to find our sins or our hurts. We're trying to find things that keep us in our own heart from following after God. And he said, and he pulled this quote from this really old uh, a Christian. And he said, for every one look at ourselves, we ought to take 10 looks at Christ. Because our hope is not that we can figure out our hurts or our sins I mean, I hope we can so we can repent of them and we can, we can find healing and restoration, but our hope is not that we're ever gonna be perfected. We're gonna die with sins unrepented of. We're gonna die with hurts that never get fixed. Our hope only ever remains that Jesus is perfect. So as you follow Jesus, are you looking to him? Keep your eyes on Jesus the next thing is keep your eyes on Jesus and abide in him. John 15 is a wonderful passage on the Christian life where Jesus, at the end of his life, soon to be crucified, is telling his disciples, abide in me. I'm like a vine. You're just like the branches. You get cut off from the vine, you don't have any hope. He actually says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you believe that? Do you believe that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing? Or do you have a little asterisk beside that verse? Say, well, I mean, and I can live. I can go get groceries without Jesus, right? Like there's things in my life I can do without Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you can do it without me, but it will be of no spiritual advantage and you will bear no spiritual fruit doing it. If you think you can live the Christian life without abiding in Christ, you don't understand the Christian life. Following Jesus means we abide in him. Abide is not a word we use all the time, but it means to dwell and remain and stay in Jesus. It means you're close to him. So we're looking at Jesus, we're keeping our eyes on Jesus, but then we want to be close to Jesus. We want to know his mind and his thoughts. We want to be close to his heart. We want to be with him. Relationships are built with time. Do you spend time with Jesus? Remember, a disciple follows Jesus. Do you spend time with Jesus? And the last way to follow Jesus is we let him lead. We've got to surrender to the king. We've got to submit our will to his will. We're going to preach through the Lord's Prayer later this spring. We're going to preach through, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. 
That's a challenge for us that we've got it every day when you crawl out of bed. You're crawling on the throne or you're crawling before the throne of Jesus. One of those two places. There's no third place to go. I mean, you're crawling on your own throne and getting ready to grab your scepter and rule your kingdom. Or you're crawling before the throne of Jesus, acknowledging you're king of the universe. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done. So are are you following Jesus? How can you in the new year follow Jesus? And here's the one big question I want you to think about this morning. When it comes to following Jesus, what hinders you from being with Jesus? What hinders you from being with Jesus? Time, busyness, priorities, plan. Maybe you desire and you've got time and you just don't know where to start. But what hinders you from being with Jesus? The next thing we see in Matthew 4.19, he says, Follow me and I will make you. And I will make you. A disciple is following Jesus and a disciple is being changed by Jesus. So why do we need to be changed? One of my favorite verses is Luke 5.31. Jesus is hanging out with sinners. The Pharisees are not a big fan of it. And Jesus says, look, uh, does a doctor go to healthy people and try to make them feel better? No. The physician doesn't go to heal the healthy. A physician goes to heal the sick. Ah, it's a clue to why I came. Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call the sinners to repentance. So why do we need to be changed? Why is the disciple being changed by Jesus? He says, I will make you. Because when we come to follow Jesus, he does not call us to follow him because he's impressed with what we bring to the table. We're not following Jesus because we've got it figured out. We're not following Jesus because we don't need to change. We're following Jesus precisely because we figured out we don't have anything to bring to the table. We don't have anything that impresses him. We don't come to Jesus because we're good enough. It's quite the opposite. We come to Jesus because we finally realize we'll never be good enough. The beautiful part about Jesus is he loves us exactly where we are and he leaves us too much to leave us where we are. That's why we need to be changed because when we come to Jesus, there's still sin in our lives. There's still weights that keep us from following him. There's still the ways of the world all embedded in our minds and our hearts and our habits and Jesus is intent on changing those things about us. So what does God use to change us? If a disciple's being changed by Jesus, what, is, what are the tools that God uses? And I wanna talk about just a couple this morning. What does God use to change us? First, he uses suffering to change us. He uses uses terrible, horrible, awful things in our life to change us. Have you read Romans 5 before? In in Romans 5, Paul actually says that we ought to be rejoicing in suffering because suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. So when we're walking through suffering, James reminds us, don't be surprised when suffering comes on you. When we're walking through suffering, God is going to use suffering to actually change who we are. Philippians 1 is a comfort in suffering because Paul reminds us that God's going to finish the good work he started. So what kind of suffering are you in? What kind of suffering may you walk through next year? Or you may walk through suffering that you're not ready and have no preparation for and you don't know it's coming and it's gonna surprise you and shock you and you're gonna enter a season of suffering darker than you've ever entered before next year. 
but you can come back and remember that Jesus is changing you through your suffering. There are no accidents in your life. But Romans 8 tells us that all things are working together for the good of those who love him. The challenge to that verse is not that God's not good. It's that we don't understand what good is. And the good that God's working in our life is changing us to be more like him, to see him, to love him, to trust him. God's gonna change you through suffering. God's also gonna change you through people. For some of us, that may be more challenging than suffering. You gotta let people into your life. You gotta let people speak into your life. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 talks about how every believer is called to the ministry of building up the body of Christ. We're all called to speak the truth in love. And when the body's working properly, it builds itself up. That's how the body of Christ works. You all have a part to play and you all have things you need to receive from everybody else. So we're giving and receiving. That's the body of Christ, the family of God, giving and receiving in our spiritual walk with God. God rigged the whole Christian life to where it's actually impossible to do alone. Did you know that? If you're trying to walk the Christian life alone, you're actually not gonna walk it well. So don't fool yourself into thinking you got it. How is God using people to change you and to shape you and to speak into your life? Because God's gonna use suffering, he's gonna use people, and God's gonna use scripture. Hebrews 4.12 talks about scripture being God's word being living and active and like a sword that pierces us. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 talks about how that, that living and active word of God, the breath of God. I remember meeting with uh, Farzad. You guys know Mirana Farzad and Farzad, uh, I had him. We talked about this verse and he memorized it and I memorized it. We get together and I said, okay, we're talking. He said, okay, so the Bible, breath of God. And just the way he said it like that, I went, breath of God breath of God on a page right here. He said, all of it, breath of God? I said, yeah, all of it. And then he, he had some, he said, Genesis, man, wrestles with God. Breath of God? I said, breath of God, brother. It's all the breath of God breathed out from God and it's for our good. It teaches us and corrects us and rebukes us and trains us. God uses his word to change us. But the last thing God uses to change us, suffering people, scripture, and his spirit. So you can have the first three. You can go through suffering and you can go through it with godly people and you can be in God's word. But if God's spirit is not breathing life into you, changing your heart, working in the depths of your soul, you're not gonna be experiencing real biblical change. But the spirit is what brings life all the other methods God uses to change you. God sends his spirit to change you. So what happens when we change? We've seen why we need to change and what God uses to change us, but how are we gonna change? We start to see that we have a new identity in Christ. That you don't have to try to live out of the identity you've built for yourself here on earth to cope with the ways of brokenness here. Like you have a new gifted identity your mind starts to be renewed that doesn't just mean you're learning more information but it means that you're setting your minds on different kinds of things and you're not just led by your feelings but you're led by your mind and understanding that your mind moves at different paces than your feelings do 
Our hearts have new loves. Augustine said it like this, our loves get reordered. That's the problem with sin. It gets our loves out of order. But when God changes us, our loves get reordered. Our actions begin to glorify God. Our relationships are motivated not just by what we can get, but by what we can give. Our possessions aren't just used for ourselves, but they're actually used for others and their good. Those are just some of the ways God changes us. So as we think about a disciple as being changed by Jesus, are you experiencing change in your life? Are you experiencing change in your life? I look out and I think of stories over the last couple of years as I've gotten to know so many of you and I can think of ways that I've seen God change so many of you and it's been a joy to see. And I can think how God has used some of these things like suffering, challenges, and scripture to change some of you. As you move into a new year, what is one or two areas you're praying God's gonna bring change to? What's something deep in your heart that you're praying, God, I want you to change this. And be ready that when he brings change, he might not bring it in the way you want or in the area you want because he knows you far better than you know yourself. But a disciple is being changed by Jesus. And so you can expect transformation. And it may be long, it may be a process, and it may not be extremely noticeable to you you can rest assured that God is bringing change to your life if you're a true disciple of Jesus. So disciple is following Jesus. We're with him. We're close to him. And then as we're with him and close to him, a disciple is being changed by Jesus. And then last of all, a disciple is joining Jesus on mission. See what he says in Matthew 4:19? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now he was talking to fishermen that their occupation was fishing for fish. And so this was extremely relevant to them where he said, you're not going to be fishing for fish anymore. I'm going to change your business. I'm going to change your vocation. You're not just fishing for fish that you're going to sell and make money. This isn't your job anymore. You have a whole new purpose. Your purpose is that you're now in the people business. You're going to go fish for men. You're going to pursue men and you're going to try to bring them into the kingdom of God by sharing the good news with them. So what exactly is the mission of Jesus for joining in I mean Jesus is already on he's fishing for men in this conversation he's already on this mission that's the first thing we've got to realize is God doesn't give us a mission that's new or different from what he's already been doing for thousands of years God's mission spans so much bigger and longer than us and he calls us to come and be a part of it so when we talk about missions overseas or missions among our neighbors hey God's been there long before we got there Hey, God's heart's been for your neighbor or your family member, or uh, we're going to Kenya and we're going to Southeast Asia, and God's heart has been there way longer than we have. God's workers have been there way longer than we have, and God is working in ways that we can't put our finger on there. So God's mission is bigger. We're joining in it. So what is the mission that God's doing? Jesus in Luke 19.10 says it just like this, that he came to seek and save the lost. He came to seek and save the lost. So that's the mission of Jesus. So what does it mean that his mission is now my mission? What does that mean for me? Well, it means you have a new purpose. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 calls it the ministry of reconciliation. That in Christ, God was reconciling the whole world to himself. And now he's given us the ministry of reconciliation that we can go with this message of reconciliation and tell the whole world how they can know God through the person and the work of Jesus. That's our mission with Jesus now. 
Did you know Ephesians 2.10 says that you've been created for good works? And 2 Timothy 3.17 reiterates almost the same thing, that the word of God makes us complete and equipped for every good work. You weren't just saved to get in this holy huddle with Jesus and some other believers and just try to grow in this holiness where you're just changing your character and you're in God's word and you're never interacting with anybody in the outside world, but you're actually blessed to be a blessing. I think we talk about that at Shout. We're blessed to be a blessing. And go read Psalm 67 and it traces, a, it traces it where it says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us so that your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all peoples. We're blessed so that through us, others would be blessed by also knowing God. That's what it means that Jesus' mission is now our mission. So how do I live on mission with Jesus? What does that look like for me? And the first thing I want you to understand is that you are specifically and uniquely called to do good works for Jesus. Now, specifically and uniquely. There is no other believer that's ever walked the face of the planet like you. And the reason I say that, I think we've got biblical verses and passages behind that, is that God has shaped you and wired you and gifted you and given you experiences and talents and abilities so that you could serve other believers and non-believers for God's glory. There is no one that has the same kinds of good works they can do the way that you can. You are a unique gift to the people of God, and you're a unique part of the mission of God. And this means that the Spirit works uniquely through you to meet specific needs in your church and your community. There's no passive disciple because as you're walking with Jesus and you're with Jesus and he's changing you and he's calling you to be a part of his mission with him, he has a very particular part for you to play and everybody has a part to play. Nobody ought to be on the sidelines. Everybody has a part to play in the kingdom of God. How else do I live on mission? Uh, Neighbors and nations, two words we've been using December as we've been talking about our year-end giving, but in our neighbors, we don't just mean who you live by, but we mean something like the Greek word oikos that Al has talked about before and we've preached about in the book of Acts, but something like where you live, work, and play, your sphere of influence, where you do life, where your kids go to school, where you work, your traffic patterns, the Starbucks you go to, where you get your groceries, where you hang out, the parks you go to. Those people in those places are your neighbors. And God's put you there on purpose. And that purpose is the mission of Jesus. But God's purpose for us and the mission of Jesus is bigger than just our neighbors here where we happen to already be going. God's purpose extends all the way to the nations. Genesis 1, 28. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. God's original plan was for the earth to be filled with worshipers. And that plan has not changed throughout every page of scripture. Genesis 12. God tells Abraham, I'm gonna make you a blessing for all the families of the earth. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all peoples. Revelation 9, I saw gathered around the throne People from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. 
So while we ought to be on mission with Jesus where we already happen to be going every single day, we also ought to be mission on mission with Jesus intentionally and specifically boarding airplanes, going over oceans so that we can engage people who have not yet heard the gospel and encourage workers who have given their life to go live in those places to make Jesus known. And I pray that there are maybe some of us who are going to go spend our lives overseas doing that. We join in the mission of Jesus among our neighbors and among the nations. So who has God put on your heart among your neighbors? Who's God put in your path that you're already burdened for, that you already know and have a relationship with, that you're going to pray for in 2020, that they'd get to come to Shalford and experience the family of God, that they'd get to hear the good news of the gospel that you would get to share with them your story of how Jesus has changed your life. Who are you praying for among your neighbors? That they'd, that they'd get to be in here. Who are you praying for? And then what is your part among God's mission to the nations? I say what's your part because we hope everybody gets to go. But sometimes there's senders and sometimes there's goers can't all go. I've heard, the, I've heard the missionary people blow the trumpet who thinks the Great Commission literally means you all ought to go. And I remember thinking to myself, what happens when you go and then people get saved and you start a church? You're going to tell all them to come back here? So yes, we ought to go. But some of us also ought to be a part of sending, right? Because it takes money to buy plane tickets and Lottie Moon Christmas offering, right? We're trying to resource missionaries all over the world so they can live in these countries, so their kids can go to school in these countries, so they can have cars, and so they can do life in these countries over a long period of time and plant the gospel in a place. So what's your part? Is God calling you to go? We have two opportunities next year to go. Is God calling you to go? To Africa or to Southeast Asia? Is God calling you to be a part of sending? Maybe God's calling your family to greater financial sacrifice so that you can underwrite some of his global mission among peoples you may never meet until we get to heaven. Maybe that's part of what God's going to do. Maybe God's put it on your heart that you ought to spend a long season of your life overseas. Months or years or decades serving his purpose on another continent. What's your part? Now notice this part of reaching the nations is just a part of what it means for everybody to be a disciple of Jesus. Because Matthew 4.19 is the simple definition for what it means to be a disciple. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. You don't have to worry about if you're qualified or equipped. Because Jesus said, he will make you. I remember growing up, my pastor used to always say, he doesn't uh, call the equipped, he equips the called. The first thing is that his call is on your life. And if you're a believer, every believer is a disciple of Jesus. There's no first, second, third tier Christians. It's just disciples. And if you're a disciple, then we want to pray with you in the new year that you find ways to follow Jesus. And we want to pray that you experience the change that only Jesus can bring. And we pray that you find your unique way that you're joining Jesus on mission. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your challenging call on our lives.
You're so good to us. And we want to take your word in this morning. And we want to apply it to our lives. And so, Father, as we're wondering what this means for us, I I pray that you would give us wisdom. Give us wisdom to see how we ought to be following you. Oh, God, a life lived for you comes from intimacy with you. So, God, I pray we wouldn't skip over following you and being with you and abiding in you and spending time in your word and in prayer, God. Father, I pray that we would see real change and transformation happen in our church next year. I pray that we'd see sins repented of, people set free from old patterns of the flesh, God. I pray that we would see hurts begin to be healed, relationships restored, marriages put back together. God, I pray that we would see the change that only you can bring. And Father, we pray for your mission. And we acknowledge that it is yours. Would you give us the joy of baptizing some of our neighbors next year? God, would you call some of our people to go overseas on our mission trips next year? And I pray that as we go, we would see what your spirit is doing all over the world and it would capture our hearts to be constant in prayer and in giving for your global mission 